Well, good morning, Hallows Church. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church up at our North Seattle Expression and Shoreline. Uh, it's been a good journey up there, but it's always nice to be back here with you in West Seattle to see you and to um, open our Bibles together to John chapter 13, the passage we heard just a few moments ago. Now, we've been talking about what it means to be a gospel-saturated people recently, living gospel-saturated lives. We talked about how it all kind of happens, too, as we take the gospel in, as we, as we think the gospel through, and then as we turn the gospel out. And today, as we continue on this journey, we're going to talk about what it means for us in our relationships with one another and in our relationships with the world, too, to have a gospel-saturated humility within us and also among us. And as we talk about humility today, its importance really cannot be overstated. It's really the entry point and the focal point of the Christian life in so many ways. The Bible tells us why that is, too. You saw some of those reasons just a moment ago up on the screen. Let me tell you a couple more. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, the Lord says, he says, this is my declaration that I will look favorably on this kind of person, the one who is humble and submissive in spirit. We're told in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then in James chapter 4, verse 6, we see that God opposes, God resists the proud, but it says he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So contrary to popular belief, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who humble themselves. Humility, you see, it gets the attention of our God. It draws the gaze and the affections of God. God personally and providentially gives grace and favor to the man and to the woman who are humble so we want to be humble people. In fact, one of our core values, you may know, is that we would be a humble community of Christ followers who uh, serve one another and who serve our neighbors in light of the ways that uh, Jesus has first served us. But humility, it can be quite easily misunderstood. The world's view of humility and the Bible's view of humility are quite different. The world's view of humility is really one of submissiveness, of meekness, of even weakness, it's often not seen as a positive trait at all. But the Bible's view of humility is a lot like that C.S. Lewis quote you saw just a couple of moments ago that says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And to add to that, I think the Bible's view of humility, you could argue, is one of a, a certain confident inner strength that's driven by a confident inner assurance of who God is and what he's done and who we are now in relation to him because of it. Humility can be a rather tricky thing, though, too, <clears throat> Excuse me, because you don't become humble by trying to be humble. You don't get after it directly, so to speak. Rather, it comes to you indirectly. And as we step into this passage today, Jesus has something important and profound to teach us about this, I think. In this very famous scene, Jesus is about to share a meal with his closest disciples. But it was more than just any old meal. In fact, he was about to share his final meal with these friends. They did not know this, but Jesus knew this. 
And we're told that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world. The hour had come, it says. Now, throughout the New Testament, we're told again and again about this coming hour, this rather mysterious but divinely appointed hour that was coming. And we're given the very clear sense that God in his sovereignty was arranging and orchestrating the series of events that would lead up to this hour uh, that we're talking about. For example, in John chapter 7, verse 30, we're told that uh, certain religious leaders wanted to seize Jesus, but it says no one laid a hand on him. And it tells us why. It says because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, verse 20, we see it again. We're told that while teaching in the temple, there were some people who were opposed to Jesus. They wanted to seize Jesus, but we're told that nobody did so. And it tells us why. It says because his hour had not yet come. Throughout the Gospel of John and the other Gospels as well, we see that Jesus lived according to a, uh, a certain heavenly timetable as he carried out his Father's will. And all of it, all of Jesus' life and ministry on earth was moving toward this divinely appointed hour that was coming, but that had not yet arrived. But then a certain corner was turned and there would be no looking back. You see, we're told in John chapter 12, verse 23, right after riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, just a few days prior to the scene that we'll be talking about today, Jesus turned to his closest disciples and he said to them that the hour has come. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man, referring to himself, to be glorified. Now, these words spoken by Jesus about himself, particularly uh, in this setting in Jerusalem and at that time during Passover week, really, uh, these words really would have got the disciples uh, excited and stirred up about what might happen next. They heard these words from Jesus and they were thinking, finally, finally, Jesus is ready to make his move, to show his greatness, to, to show power and to seize power. They knew, that, they knew what Jesus was capable of. They had seen his miracles. They'd seen him heal people of all that plagues them. They'd seen him deliver people from all that binds them. They'd seen him literally calm storms and bring uh, the dead back to life. And so they were fired up. Clearly something big was about to go down. Jesus had just said so. He said, the hour has arrived for me to be glorified. Now, surely the disciples thought that Jesus was about to uh, exert himself. He was going to show his greatness, and he was going to show his power, and he most certainly was. But what we're going to see is that Jesus was not going to show his greatness and his power in the ways that the, the disciples wanted or in the ways that they expected. And Jesus, he's good at that, isn't he? Kind of flipping the scripts on things doing the unexpected, challenging the ways we think about things. And he's going to do that here too, that's to be sure. Because these disciples, they, they most certainly did have expectations of Jesus. They were misplaced expectations of Jesus in many ways. And we often have those too, don't we? But in any event, they were quite ready for Jesus to show his true self, to exert his power, to... Uh, expel the Romans, and to liberate the Jewish nation. That's what they were expecting. But what we'll see here is that when it, when it came to what it was going to mean for Jesus to be glorified, the disciples were thinking one way, and, and Jesus was quite clearly thinking another. 
The disciples were thinking about greatness and power in one way, in the worldly way. And Jesus was thinking about them in a heavenly way, in a different way. And we're going to see those differences really come out in a striking way by way of this passage today as Jesus really redefines for us what it means to be great in God's eyes and in God's kingdom. Now, one of the ways we know that the disciples were thinking about these things in the wrong ways, in worldly ways, is because, because the, the more the disciples believed that Jesus was going to take charge in Jerusalem and going to uh, establish his kingdom in some sort of dramatic and powerful move, the more they began to covet positions of influence and, pa- and power and importance in this new kingdom that they believed Jesus would usher in. In fact, on multiple occasions in places like Luke chapter 22, we see that. As all this was beginning to go down, we see that fights, in fact, were beginning to break out among the disciples over this. We see the disciples arguing with one another, not about Jesus and his glory and his greatness or how he was going to establish those things. No, they were arguing about who among them, who among the disciples was going to be the greatest Now, each time these sorts of uh, disputes erupted, and and they seemed to happen more often than you might think, Jesus would correct them, and he would try to redirect their thinking on these matters unsuccessfully for the most part. These disciples, they would ask one another, and they would ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, when you establish your kingdom, can I have this title or that uh, title, or can I have uh, this position or that rank? What's it going to be? What's going to be in it for me, Jesus? You know, I, I have given up everything for you after all. And Jesus would often respond by saying things like he does in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, where he says to his squabbling disciples, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. That's the way of the kingdom. Jesus says the way up is down. The way to uh, power is through humility and weakness. The way to greatness is not to seek it for yourself, but to, to seek it for others. Jesus was again and again redefining greatness for his disciples, and he's about to do it here too in this passage for them, and I hope for us too. But interestingly, what you see with the disciples is that uh, what they were hearing in Jesus' words was only what they really wanted to hear from Jesus' words. You see, they seemed to be quite selective in their hearing, I believe because of the personal agendas they were bringing to him. They were often thinking more about what was in it for them. They wanted to know who was going to have the highest rank, who was going to have the best corner office with the best view once Jesus was in charge. It's quite unbelievable, really, just how much some of the disciples were so focused on themselves and what they might get from Jesus out of all of this. Check this out. In Mark's account, just before entering Jerusalem, in in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus said to the 12 disciples, hey, we're going into Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be handed over and condemned to death. I'm going to be mocked and flogged and spit on. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise after three days. And this is no joke. In the very next verse, James and John take Jesus aside. They don't even acknowledge what he had just said. They don't ask questions. They don't say, what do you mean by all that? That sounds uh, rough. What's going on? No, they say, hey, Jesus, what about us? Can we sit on your right? And can we sit on your left when you come into power? 
you see they were only hearing what they wanted to hear, and because of that, really, they were, they were missing the point altogether because they were selective in the way that they listened to Jesus. Their understanding of who he was and what he came to do was defective and deficient. And how often is that true with us too, friends? That we hear only the things we want to hear when it comes to Jesus. The things we don't like to hear kind of go in one ear and out the other. But Jesus is going to challenge that in his disciples, I think, and in us too, I hope, by way of this passage. Now, we said earlier that Jesus knew his hour had come. It says that in verse 1, but he knew some other things too. Let's look again at the first few verses of this passage, uh, verses 1 to 3 of John chapter 13. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. Jesus knew his hour had come for him to depart from this world, to return to the Father. He knew his death was imminent, in fact. Jesus also knew that this hour that had finally come would not only be the hour of his death, it would also be the hour of his, his greatest conflict. You see, the devil had already taken up position deep within the inner circle of his disciples. Verses 2 and 11 tell us that. Judas would soon betray him. He would sell out Jesus. He would hand Jesus over. And Jesus knew this. And he permitted Judas to be present at this meal. Nevertheless, in verse 3, we see that Jesus also knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He knew what had been given to him. And he knew where he was returning to, where he was going next. The hour had come, the clock was ticking, the plan had been set into motion, and everything from this point forward would now be driving toward a climax at the cross that would, that would forever fracture the course of human history. Jesus knew from places like Isaiah chapter 53 that he would soon be pierced for our transgressions. He knew that he would be crushed for our iniquities. He had come and lived a life that we could not live, and he was on the verge of dying the death that we deserve. He knew what was coming. He knew it would be horrific, but he, he also knew what it would accomplish, too. From that same chapter of Isaiah, chapter 53, he knew that the punishment that would be put on him would bring us peace, and that by his wounds we would be healed. And with all of these things, everything that we uh, we'll talk about in this scene, and everything that was about to follow on the cross, we're told in verse 1, was motivated by, by love, by the love of Jesus for his own, for you and I. He came to love his own to the very end, and that's what he was about to do, not just to the very end of his life, but to the very end, the very uh, objective and, and end result that God and his grace had planned for you and I before the foundations of the world that we might be reconciled to him in Christ. Now, it's not spelled out here in John's account, but we know from uh, Luke chapter 22 that leading up to this scene that we're talking about, Jesus had instructed two of the disciples, James and John, to go out ahead and to, 
to procure and to prepare a room, a space where they would, they would have their final meal together. It says this in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 to 13. It says, Jesus, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared for the Passover. Now, again, we see that Jesus knew certain things. In fact, it seems that he was arranging and orchestrating these very things. Peter and John went and found the man in the room, just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the guest room in the man's house, just as Jesus had asked. And one thing we need to understand is that it was very typical in that time. If you were a guest in a house, in a room such as this, it was quite customary for a servant of that house to wash the feet of the guests when they would arrive, most especially before a meal would be enjoyed. You have to remember, in that time, there were no paved roads. There were only dusty dirt roads traveled by many people, many animals, many people wearing sandals, many animals who would urinate and defecate on those roads. It was quite dirty and quite filthy at times, and people's feet, as you could imagine, would get quite disgusting. And to wash that filth, and that grime and that stench off another person's feet with your own hands was the lowest and most menial of tasks reserved for the lowest and most menial of servants. In fact, Jewish, Jewish servants were not even allowed to do this. Only Gentile servants were used for washing feet. But when the disciples arrive in this room that had been, been prepared for them by Jesus' own instruction, it seems that no servant was present no servant was there to clean them up when they arrived. The basin was apparently there, and the towel, all the foot-washing gear was present, but there was nobody there to use it. Now, this passage doesn't explicitly say this, but I think surely just as Jesus had arranged this room, he had arranged this part of things too, because he had a certain lesson in mind for his disciples that day. And so you can imagine the disciples showing up looking around, looking at one another. You know, the food is ready, they're hungry, but, but no servant shows up to wash their feet. And none of them stepped up either. Not one of them makes a move for that towel and that basin. These disciples who are, were already arguing and competing with one another about who was the greatest, they were not about to stoop so low as to wash one another's feet. And I can imagine Peter or perhaps another disciple saying, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm tired of waiting. I'm starving. Let's eat. And apparently they went ahead and started eating. Because listen to what we're told went down in verses 4 and 5 during this meal. It says, so, so he, he being Jesus, got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it to himself, around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a the towel tied around him. 
And so Jesus, he, he strips down, it says, to his undergarments. He took off what he was wearing. And he put on a loincloth, the clothing of a servant. But not only does Jesus strip down, he stoops down and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. A quick question for you this morning. If you could, would you want to know when and how you were going to die? And if you knew these things, if you knew when you were going to die and how you were going to die, and if you knew it was coming quite quickly, what would you be doing? What experiences would you want to enjoy in your remaining time? What final memories might you want to create for yourself? What items on your bucket list would you be checking off? Jesus, knowing the hour had come, knowing he had a very short time to live, chose not to think about himself. He chose not to serve himself. He chose not to feel sorry for himself. No, he chose to step down and to stoop down and to wash filthy feet. And he washed the filthy feet, not only of his friends, but of his enemy and betrayer, Judas, too. And in so doing, Jesus is going to give them and he's going to give us a lesson, a lesson of what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. And it's not about rank. It's not about positions. It's not about titles or status. No, greatness in God's eyes and greatness in God's kingdom is not at all about any of those things. Rather, greatness in the kingdom of God, just as Jesus shows us, is about uh, being willing to humbly set aside all of those things for the sake of others. But then look at what Peter does in verse 6. This is Peter being Peter. Peter is a guy who's pretty impulsive. He often speaks before he thinks, and he's at it again here. And so picking it up at verse 6, he, he came to Simon Peter, who, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm going to do you don't realize now, but afterwards you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, does not need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, this is not the first time that we find Peter telling Jesus what to do. There was a time in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus was talking about his coming suffering and his coming uh, death, and Peter took him aside and, and rebuked him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, that is not going to happen to you. And here in verse 8, here in this passage today, Peter says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And the language there is very strong. It's actually, there's a, there's a double negative in there. One Greek scholar says that verse 8 should be more properly translated as this, Jesus, you shall by no means wash my feet. No, never. Like many of us, Peter is a man who struggles with pride at times. And one of the interesting things we see about Peter and his pride is that he was both unwilling to serve and he, he was unwilling to be served, too. 
when they arrived in this room and there was no servant to wash their feet, neither he nor any of the other disciples were willing to, to lower themselves, to get down and, and wash the feet of these other men. It was an abhorrent idea to most of them, to be sure. Pride, you see, was lurking in each one of their hearts, and that pride was preventing them from, from serving one another. But we see here, too, not only did Peter have a proud unwillingness to serve others in this way, he also had a proud unwillingness to himself be served. In Peter's mind, he didn't need Jesus to do that. He could do that himself if he wanted. And he says so quite emphatically, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. No, never. But Jesus, as he often does, he gently corrects Peter. He says in verse 8, Peter, you must let me serve you in this way. Unless I wash you, Jesus says, you will have no part with me. This can also be translated, you will have no share with me or you will not belong to me. And again, Peter being Peter, when he discovered that to refuse Jesus in this way would mean, would mean to lose fellowship with Jesus, he quickly went in the opposite direction. In verse 9, he says basically, well, all right then, if that's the case, Jesus, then, then wash all of me. He wasn't really getting it yet, and Jesus said that would be the case, didn't he? In verse 7, Peter was looking at Jesus, and he was saying, Lord, what are you doing down there at my feet? And Jesus was saying to Peter and to you and I too, you need me down here more than you know. You need me to, to stoop and to kneel in this way. You need me to serve you in this way. This is Jesus, in a sense, saying, you can never know me. You can never uh, be enough for me. You can never be worthy of me on your own unless you allow me to stoop down, to, to lower myself, to cleanse you of the dirt and the grime that you've collected over the course of your travels through this life. He's saying you cannot do it yourself no matter how hard you try. And if you don't see your need for that, if you don't see your need for me to come to you, to kneel before you and to make you clean by, by dying for you, then you will have no, no part with me, he says. One of the main reasons that many people can't find God is, is not at all what you might think. Many would say they can't find God because he's too distant, he's, he's far off, he's uninterested. But this passage and the rest of the Bible would say otherwise. At times you see the reason a person can't find God is not that he's too high or too distant, it's that he's too close and he's too low. Peter was saying, what are you doing down there, Lord? Because Peter did not realize his need. In fact, the idea of Jesus kneeling before him and serving him down low in that way was repugnant to Peter. He did not understand. He didn't see his need for a stooping Savior or a suffering Savior. He didn't see his need for a dying Savior. But Jesus says, if you don't see your need, you will have no part with me. The way to find God in some cases is not to look up, it's to it's to look down. The way to find God is to see that you were so sinful and weak and helpless that he had to die for you. 
in your place for your sin. He had to do that. He had to get down low so that he could lift you up. That's how the Christian life begins, and that's how the Christian life uh, progresses by seeing that and savoring that again and again and again. Jesus, would you, would you really do this for me? Would you really go down that low for me? Now, I do want to touch on something said by Jesus here in verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus says something that sounds a little puzzling. He says to Peter, one who has bathed does not need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. Now, the obvious question here is that if one is bathed and completely clean, why does Jesus say uh, he still needs to have his feet washed? Now, most scholars believe Jesus is speaking metaphorically here about both our salvation on the one hand and about our sanctification on the other. He's saying, on the one hand, I've, once I've cleansed you of the filth and the stench, once I've pulled you out of the sewage that is sin, you are completely clean. It's a once and for all act. It's a permanent reality for each and every Christian. As God says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, our sins and our iniquities, he will remember no more. But at the same time, even though you're totally clean in that respect, sin in a fallen world is an ongoing reality that each one of us must face. And so this repeated need for cleansing rep represents our ongoing need for confession and repentance and our need to continually apply and appropriate the work of the cross to our hearts and to our lives on a daily basis as we stumble in sin and as we dirty our feet. We see this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where this same apostle John says to those who are already Christians, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our ongoing sin in this fallen world does not negate or remove at all what Jesus did, but we do need to confess our sins to him and ask him to cleanse us anew each and every day so as not to hinder our fellowship with him and our walk with him. Finally, in verses 12 to 17, we read this. It says, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, friends, most of us, I think, feel inferior much of the time, but we act superior to compensate for it. Jesus Christ, he knew he was superior, and yet he acted inferior, at least according to the measures of this world. He counted others as more significant than himself. He channeled all of his power and his purpose into the interests 
and the needs of other people. Jesus is redefining things here. He's setting the pace here and setting an example for us here too. This is Jesus saying, let me tell you what life is about. Let me tell you what uh, I am about. Let me tell you what you should be about. Life is about a type of love that humbly goes low so that others might be raised high. Life is about a type of love that humbly stoops down without regard to personal dignity, without regard to personal gain so that others might be lifted up and loved. I mentioned earlier you don't become humble by trying to be humble. But if that's the case, how do you and I grow in humility together? How do we become a people marked by gospel-saturated humility? I think Jesus' question in verse 12 points us in the right direction, to be sure. He says there, do you know what I've done for you? Do you ever ponder that, what he's done for you? And what it says about you? What it says about him? Do you ever reflect on the wonders of the cross? John Stott says that every time we look at the cross for what it truly is, Christ is there saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, and your death that I am dying. If you're a Christian and that does not move you, if that does not melt you, if that does not humble you, then there is something wrong. You're not thinking soberly about these things and about yourself. He stepped down, he stripped down, he stooped down. He bled and died for you and for me. And if we're thinking rightly about this, there is nothing at all in human history or in this universe that can cut us down to size like the cross of Christ. And that is a good thing, friends, because all of us have overinflated views of ourselves in one way or another, just like the disciples did as they argued over who was most important and as they refused to serve one another. One of the ways that human pride manifests itself in this fallen world and in our fallen human hearts is in refusing to take the lower role in things. The disciples didn't want to do it, and we often don't either. But Jesus, he embraced the lower role, didn't he? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10. He took on the lower role in every case for the good of others. And did you pick up on the very fascinating connection between what Jesus did in this scene that we've been exploring today and the entire life and ministry of Jesus? This scene here, in a very interesting way, is a snapshot of sorts. It's a dramatization, in a way, of his entire work of salvation. Now remember, in this scene, John chapter 13, Jesus took off his outer clothing, and he assumed the role of a servant. He stooped down, he got down low, and he took on, he took the lower role so that his disciples could be cleansed. And after he did, when it was when he was all done, in verse 12, we told that he was, we're told that he put on his outer clothing again. And he reclined. Now think about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Think about those things as summarized in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. 
Let me read that for you. It says in verse 6 that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus, he, he stepped down, right? He, he stooped down below his rank, below his title to come down to our level. He took his outer clothing off, so to speak. He set it aside. He set aside his divine privileges. He humbled himself, taking on the role of a servant. He took the lower role so that you and I might be cleansed and so that we could take on a higher role. And after he did, he put on his outer clothing again, returning to the Father, highly exalted with a name that is above every name. I think what we see here is that the essence of humility is about being committed to someone else's greatness and someone else's glory rather than our own, regardless of cost, regardless of that person's rank or position, and regardless of your own rank or position too. And Jesus, he embodied that perfectly. Many of us look around at people and we set limits we say, I will serve these people, but, but not those. These people deserve it, but those do not. That person wronged me. That person is beneath me. I, I don't really like that person. But how wonderful that Jesus would not set any such limits on those uh, he loves and on, on who deserves his love and on who does not. And so let's follow his lead together. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to go low, to, to stoop, to step down from your rank, to step down from your position, and to be committed to other people's greatness and glory rather than your own? Are you willing to serve those who may not deserve it or those who are lower than you? Are you willing to serve those who have nothing at all to offer you? Are you willing to serve even those who may have wronged you or betrayed you? I hope you're willing to do so. Let's be willing to do so together because each and every one of those things is exactly how Jesus saw us. And yet he loved us and served us anyways. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for serving us in these ways. Thank you that you would step down and stoop down so low to cleanse us of our sin. Thank you that you would show us a new way of living. Would you give us grace and would you give us joy as we love and serve those around us? Would you expose any pride that is lurking in our hearts this morning? any pride that may be making us unwilling to either serve or to be served? Would you make us a people willing to take on the lower role for the good of others 
Would you challenge us today, God? Would you change us today? Would you give us grace today to be a humble people? In Jesus' name, amen.